0: in reading at verse 16. We try to explain every time we come together what the rightly divided word is all about. It is impossible to get the spiritual implications of the word unless we know the people to whom the word is written. And we know that there are two classes of people at least. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, we have... Three classes of people brought before us, In the words give none offence, neither to the Jew nor to the Church nor to the Gentile. And we find that these three bodies are have certain messages given to them, and these are not to be confused. while we mix the Hebrew Church up with the Christian Church, the Church which is His body we will be sorely confused and that and yet that's what's being done Sunday after Sunday in all of the churches who respond to the traditional way of doing things in first second peter chapter 1 verse 16 we read for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from god the father honor and glory When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in the dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I would like to, in a little while, I would like to give you a quotation that I took from a book written by a very prominent leader in fundamentalism, and tell you what he says as he opens or as he puts his pen to paper when he wants to give an exposition on 2 Peter chapter 1. Before I do that though, I want to remind you of a few things that we have reiterated so many times in the past, but I think it's necessary for some who receive our tapes and perhaps for ourselves here to be constantly reminded of a few facts that will... Help us to see that it's absolutely necessary that we constantly and continually rightly divide the word. To begin with, Christendom has failed to recognize that there are two outgatherings or gatherings of people in the New Testament scripture and plainly identified. One is the Hebrew church and the other is the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. All of Christendom, practically all of Christendom apart from those who rightly divide the word cannot see but one church and that's the church supposedly begun at Pentecost and added to ever since then. Both callings, and we want to say that both of these churches represent two callings. The Hebrew church has its calling as well as the church which is his body. Both callings are referred to In the scriptures as kingdoms, we find in Matthew the kingdom of heaven, and that has to do with the nation of Israel and the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to set up according to Matthew chapter 2 that we read this morning in our Sunday school reading. And then we find that there is the other calling, the calling concerning the church, which is his body. And that uh, kingdom is uh, called the kingdom of His dear Son. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter, or no, pardon me, that's not the scripture, but we have the church uh, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Those are two different kingdoms, and they are to be separated as we go through the word. And yet we read and we find that the word kingdom is so loosely used today in Bible teaching, and even in the gospel, we find that the gospel has been terribly uh, mixed up with kingdom gospel, and the gospel of the Apostle Paul is vastly different than the kingdom gospel, which uh, has as its main word of of uh, uh, caution, and uh, shall we say, what word is it? It's the word repentance, and constantly when you here the word repentance, it's a word that belongs to the kingdom of heaven gospel and not the gospel of uh, the apostle Paul, the gospel of the mystery. So you have to make a difference there, and that's a good difference to recognize. Since Pentecost, all believers of either one of these two kingdoms, that is the Uh, kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God's dear son, or the Hebrew church, or the church which is his body. Well, since Pentecost, all believers of either one of these can be referred to as Christians because all are followers of Christ. The one is a follower of Christ as king, and the other is a follower of Christ as the risen head and ascended to the Father's right hand. However, Christ was presented differently by Peter and Paul, the one, of course, as I just mentioned, as their coming king, and the other as the risen head of the body. All of the revelation concerning the earthly people are contained, all of the revelation, remember, concerning the people of Israel and that heavenly kingdom set up to be set up on the earth are contained in the Old Testament, the four Gospels, The book of Acts and the circumcision epistles which begin with James and ends with Revelation. So never confuse the Apostle Paul's epistles to the church which is his body with the circumcision epistles which have to do with the Hebrew church. All of the revelations made to the body church are bound up in Paul's epistles and you don't have to go outside of Paul's epistles to find out our particular standing and blessings uh, that we have in the body. Because God was still dealing with Israel in the entire Acts period, the seven epistles of Paul written during the Acts period contain some concessions to the people of Israel or to the Hebrew church. The seven post-Acts epistles contain the sum and substance of a full relationship of the body members of the head of Christ. And we find that uh, that's in the seven post-Acts books, and that... Uh, would tell us that they are far more important as to revelation than the seven books written during the Acts period. Since all believers of both callings enjoy many things in common, both Peter and Paul refer to them uh, to their uh, refer to them to their own particular assembly or church or body of believers. There's a lot of things that we both have in common. We're dealing with the same God, holiness. Uh, is uh, to be uh, manifested in all of us, and therefore there will be some words and phrases and some statements that will be mentioned by Paul as well as by Peter. But this is not to lead us to suppose that there is no distinction to be made between the two callings. Now remember that. Now when we get into 2 Peter chapter 1, and we've been in these particular circumcision epistles since we start with James chapter 1, we find that when Mr. Ironside, who is a very popular fundamentalist among the traditional uh, brand of teaching, we find that he begins his notes on page 66 of his book in this particular way. Now, he this is his introductory two paragraphs to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to think of it as I read it, because you will see it will be vastly different than what I will be given you. This is my understanding that I give you. This represents his understanding. It doesn't represent the scripture necessarily, but it represents the understanding of two particular preachers. Now we find that Mr. Ironside says this, quote, As we begin our consideration of this second epistle, it is well for us to remember that it is in the nature of, of a final message from Christ's venerable servant, the Apostle Peter, who wrote in view of his forthcoming martyrdom in order to warn believers of the oncoming flood of error and apostasy which would sweep over Christendom and which would necessitate real confidence in God and and in his word on the part of those who were to be called upon to meet such disturbing conditions. Now that's a long sentence. But he's uh, he's known for his long sentences. And then in the next paragraph, he says this. Now, don't forget the word Christendom that I brought you there. And the Apostle Peter does not prophesy a thing about the last days of Christendom. He prophesies concerning the last days of the people of Israel. And that's another point where we have to make a difference. The second paragraph is this, quote, in a very blessed way, the Spirit of God first puts before us the blessings that are ours as Christians. And he doesn't announce a certain a single solitary blessing. If we want to look at our blessings, we go back to Paul. And if they happen to be in the same language, well, we thank God for it. But we don't go to Peter to find out what our blessings are. His blessings that he writes about are exclusively for the Hebrew church and not for us. And it says in the importance of those uh, and of growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ that we, and I emphasize the word we because he is referring to the body of Christ, that we may have strength to stand against the evil threatening the church. And it's not threatening the church. Now, he only recognizes one church, so I have to tell you that while it would be all right for me to make that statement, I, I would be correct because I would also add that it is the Hebrew church that he's talking about, but he only knows one church. Now, when you see the dilution of God's word that's written to the Hebrew church, and you find that he mixes it up with Christendom and with the church which is his body, well, then you find that you can be very much confused, as most Christians are, as to the contents and revelation of Second Peter. Now, getting to 2 Peter chapter 1, we might say this, Peter's subject throughout is that of the promised kingdom which is conditioned upon the acceptance on the part of Israel of the Lord Jesus Christ as their risen king. You must remember, according to Matthew chapter 2, we read that he came when he was to be manifested to be the king of Israel. He is not the king of the church. He is not our king. No matter how much you're going to sing that To the contrary, in Christmas carols, you will sing a lot about the king, but he is not our king, but you will be made to believe he is. He is our risen head. He is the other part of that body which is so necessary to the body and for which there can be no body, apart from which there can be no body at all. There's got to be a body composed of members and a living head, and Christ is that living head. He is not our king. Now, every time you read the word kingdom, it does not imply the necessity of a king ruling. And that's what a lot of people make a mistake on. You you look up your dictionary for the word kingdom and you will see that it does not just only apply where a king is the ruler. We find at their time, that is a time for the people of Israel. Remember this is written about 60 A.D., about 10 years short of 70 A.D., when God, after turning his back upon the people of Israel in Acts chapter 28 and 28, sends Titus to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the tabernacle, or rather the temple, Herod's temple. And those things are destroyed, so they are they cease to be a nation as such from that time on, And they cease to have a religion from that time on. Judaism ceases or is rather suspended until it is picked up later after the church which is his body has been completed and removed out of this world. I want you to note the difference in Peter's proof of authenticity. You know it's necessary that these New Testament writers once in a while prove that what they are saying is correct and it is according to the word. There's only one writer who cannot say that it is according to the word that's been written in the past, and that's Paul. So get this thought. We've already looked at this a few weeks ago, but this is a matter of reiteration for our prophet. I want you to notice that Peter's proof, in order to show that his scriptures are authenticated, uh, he has to allude to the prophets as we have in verse 19. It says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that ye take heed, and so on. And so prophecy is one of the uh, uh, proofs of the authenticity of his word. And then we find that uh, uh, his personal experience on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was uh, privileged along with the uh, James and John, the three of them, was to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew chapter 17. And we find that the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus appeared to him as a resurrected person who is appearing in his majesty and in his great power and glory, which was a type of the kingdom that would come into being at the very next appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ to that nation. Now we find that he refers to this particular experience as as being an eyewitness to uh, to that particular scene, an eyewitness of his power and coming and, and glory and majesty. And that's what took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul can refer to no such thing at all. He has no experience in the past that he can say, I want you to look up so and so. It is only during the books that he wrote during the Acts period that he could say uh, about the gospel, for instance, that he goes back to Abraham. Because in Matthew, in, uh, Romans chapter 4, he shows that Abraham was justified by faith. And as Abraham was justified by faith, plus uh, no works, whatever, so we are justified by faith. And Abraham is a wonderful picture in Romans chapter 4 of how we are saved. But you see... Uh, The apostle Paul goes back in the gospel way before the law and the prophets and he goes back to Abraham and he shows how how that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. If we today want the righteousness of God uh, applied to us or given to us, we have to simply accept Christ as the one who died for our sins on Calvary's cross. We cannot overlook the preaching of the cross and expect to be saved by accepting a Jesus or a Christ of the religious world's manufacture. We we can't do that. We find an awful lot of preaching today where the cross is not preached. And the Bible says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. And that is a fact, and we find that if we want people to be really saved by the grace of God and taken out from this mass profession that you see throughout Christendom today, they've got to hear the message of the cross, and a lot of evangelists are not even doing that today. Now, Paul cannot refer to any such thing or things as the Apostle Peter can if he wants to prove that his his message is uh, 100% authentic, because the church age was a mystery, it is not prophesied, it is what we might call an interjection of a program that's never before revealed. It's never been before revealed. It was hid in God as it were according to Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1. And for that reason, we find that Paul cannot say, I want you to know that I am preaching the truth because you can read it back in Isaiah chapter 53 or in Jeremiah or in Ezekiel or in Daniel. He cannot make such references. All he can do is appeal for authenticity to certain language that he alone adopts and is not adopted at all by Peter, James, and John and Jude. And what is that language? In Galatians chapter 1 and 6 he says I certify you brethren. I certify in other words I stand on it. It's like raising your hand uh, uh, raising your right hand with your left hand or on the bible or, or your right hand on the bible and raising your left hand I guess it is. But it's, it's taking an oath. That's what he's doing when I see, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. He had to say that. He couldn't prove it by going back into the Old Testament scripture. And when he was trying to prove this, he was trying to prove not only gospel but also ministry. So he doesn't even resort to going back to Abraham. And then we find another thing in Galatians chapter 1 verse 20 he says before God I lie not. Peter never has to say I'm not telling a lie. You see all Peter has to do is say what I am saying and what I am preaching today has been preached before. This is a continuation of a message that Israel has been given for the centuries prior to uh, the time that they were then living. So in Galatians 1.20 he says before God I lie not. And in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 he says I say the truth in Christ I lie not. And then in 2 Corinthians 11.31 he says God knoweth that I lie not. And then in 1 Timothy 2.7 he says I speak the truth in Christ I lie not. Four times he says I'm not lying. You've got to believe me. I have no other reference but the fact that you are to believe that what I have has been given to me by the risen Christ. After He ascended into heaven, He spoke to me. He took me up there into glory and He revealed marvelous things uh, to me. And He also gave me a thorn in the flesh so that I wouldn't boast in the flesh as to all of the knowledge and the revelations I now have. But He says, I want you to know I am not telling a lie. This is the truth. And that's how Paul would have to prove that his message was authentic while Peter could say, why, I had a wonderful time up there in the Mount of Transfiguration when I literally saw the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the, uh, the law and Elijah the prophets. And there in the presence of the law and the prophets which were gloriously fulfilled in the resurrection, burial, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, or rather the resurrection... We find that in their their presence, we saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was very much alive, so they had a vision of Christ before he ever went to the cross as proceeding through his death in order that he might be a raised or a risen Christ, the King of Israel and Israel's Messiah. I want you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 And that's where we have this story. Now remember this took place before uh, Christ ever went to the cross. He still has to die. And that's one reason why you read that the conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah happened to be his death on the cross, his decease. It was so important that he die, otherwise Israel would never have a king, Israel would never have a kingdom, and all of the redemption which was so far in prospect would be nullified because it takes a person to die for a people. And up until that point, only lambs had died. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1. and verse 28, because 28 is connected with verse 17, and you should see how some of the people deal with verse 28 or chapter 16. Verse 28 of Matthew 16. Did I give you the right chapter? You've got it? All right. Matthew 16, 28 says, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He came in his kingdom in the transfiguration on the mount. And therefore, chapter 17, 1 says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. What is a transfiguration? It is the outward appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ answering 100% to his true inward self. He was very God when he came into the world. He was Emmanuel, God with us. All the glory of God was overshadowed by a human body Therefore, many people never saw the Christ that was in that person. They never saw him as being the Messiah, the Christ of God, the seed of the woman. He came in lowly guise, as we might say. He came in a body like yours and mine. And yet we know that inside of that body there was all the glory of the Godhead wrapped up in the person who was occupying that body for a short period of time. And the reason why he occupied the body was there could be no death without laying down one's body in death and Christ had to have a body in order to die for you and for me and for the people of Israel. And Therefore we find it was necessary for him to have that body but in that body there was a glory that was only true of deity. God the Father saw that glory. Eyes that were open to see that glory by simple faith could say uh, that we have... Uh, Let's see. And the word became flesh and the flesh... And, and the word became flesh... And dwell among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They beheld his glory. They saw the true inward self, but they still had to see it simply by faith. They never saw it revealed, as these three men were privileged to see it revealed. When, according to this scripture... It says, and was transfigured, verse 2, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter, and said unto, uh, uh, unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. The sad part of it is that they were so overwhelmed by what they saw, their guard was down and Satan entered in while their guard was down and made a suggestion that was so contrary to the nature of God. And that is this, let's put Moses and Elijah and the Lord Jesus all on an equal status, all on the same plane. Let's build a tabernacle or a tent for this one, a tabernacle or a tent for this one, a tabernacle or a tent for this one. one. And you know what God had to do? He had to eliminate Moses and Elijah and just allow one left and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He is the man. And we find in the world's religions today, and Christendom is involved in this, where human individuals have been teachers and we find that there are leaders of cults who have been placed on the same platform as the Lord Jesus Christ. I listened to a woman, I told you about her. She was a witch on the program of Phil Donahue, and she had been in the Baptist church when she was a lot younger, but she now denies the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is equal in stature spiritually as with the other leaders of cults. Can you imagine that? And that shows you what apostasy will do. That will show you what church membership will do sometimes where a person has not been saved by the grace of God. My dentist happens to be a man who is a Mormon and we find a Jehovah Witness. He's a Jehovah Witness and he is a former Baptist. And what happens to these multitudes of people that have never been saved and yet they are connected with uh, legitimate fundamental denominations and if they are not saved they will not stay and they're going to be dupes of Satan and they will swallow uh, the the lie that is being uh, told in Christendom today, and there's a good deal of that lying going on. And While he yet spake, it says, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man. Save Jesus only. And that's what God the Father wanted to do, eradicate every other man. And in Christendom today, even among fundamentalists, I am afraid that we have honored and revered some of our past teachers of past decades of decades ago and put them almost on a status of equal authenticity with the Word of God. We have to, if we make a statement, well, let's see what they say. I won't say what Bible it is, but well, let's see what so-and-so says. And we go back to his notes, and we see that if they don't go along with those notes, we just don't believe the guy that's saying that uh, this is what uh, God says. If It's not according to the interpretation. And I want to say there are many notes today, and I believe firmly that a Bible should not contain notes. I have a Bible and the, they contain notes and they are written by men and all of the man is doing is advancing his understanding and his understanding might be ever so correct but it's not all correct, it's not equal with the word of God. His word should never be taken oh, over and against God's revelation rightly divided and I believe that that's true with any book in which you have man's notes and I believe it would be a lot better for all of us to have a Bible that has absolutely no notes alongside a one that if you feel it's necessary to have one with notes. i like to see what good men have said, but I've had to change my mind about what I once thought were those notes of good men because they are not according to the rightly divided word. Now when you get to 2 Peter chapter 1, you notice that it's uh, chapter 1 and verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we may know unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. One thing I want to impress upon you that James and Peter and John and Jude and Revelation they have one message and that is the king and his kingdom. It is not the body and the head. It is the King and the Kingdom, and that's why the Apostle Paul wants to bring, uh, the Apostle Peter, pardon me, wants to bring them back constantly to that which uh, their prophets and Moses have set before them, and that is that they are the people of a kingdom which will be on the face of this earth in the coming day, and the King will be the Messiah, the Son of God. He will be the seed of the woman. And he will be the offspring of David because that's what he is according to his lineage. All right, then he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you can identify the scripture that I read in Matthew 17 with being what he is referring to right here. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And that's the end of that particular witness that he has to the authenticity of his word. The Apostle Paul, cannot go back to anything that he had. He can say that I was caught up into the third heaven, whether I was dead or alive, I don't know. He can speak after that manner and tell you that since Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, it pleased the risen Christ to talk to him and give him the revelations that we now have in Paul's epistles. And they are the most recent And they put a climax to the last dispensation, that's a new dispensation. All dispensations up until this present dispensation have all been new. But we find that the next one is nothing else but a carryover or a continuation of the dispensation that is left off at Matthew chapter 28. It is still the kingdom dispensation. It is still the dispensation of law and the kingdom. We we're not going to have another new dispensation after this, and this is the gist of what Paul is trying to say in the first chapter of the book of Colossians, how that God has given to the apostle Paul to complete the word of God, because as far as dispensations is concerned, you've got the last of it when Paul's writings. You don't go to James and Peter and John and the Revelation. A lot of people think that the Revelation is the last thing for the last dispensation. But that has to do again with the kingdom. It doesn't have to do with us. But people will put the church in James' epistles, in John's epistles, in Peter's epistles, in Jude, and in Revelation. And the church, the body of Christ, is not there. And that's all because they have a wrong view of Pentecost as being the beginning of a church When Pentecost only represents an addition made to a church that's already in existence and spoken of in Matthew chapter 18 verse 17 and chapter 16 verse 18. And when you see those two chapters you will have two references to the Hebrew church. You have also in Acts chapter 7 a reference made by uh, uh, Stephen when he was being stoned. Because there he called the church, the church in the wilderness, that is the Hebrew church, he called the church in the wilderness. And that's what it is. What is a church? It is an outcalling. Has Israel ever been an outcalling? Yes. I have called my son out of Egypt, is what God says. They are a gathered people. They were gathered out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And the time is coming when God resumes his activity in establishing the kingdom of heaven upon this earth when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back visibly physically, uh, physically and physically. The time is then coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will establish that church and he is going to uh, show himself to be king of kings and lord of lords. Now I believe that these things are necessary for us to see as we get into Peter. You get no grace teaching You get no teaching of the church, the body of Christ. Let us remember that. And let's not be afraid to tell people what these books are all about. They are not about the church and the rapture. Now when I thought I was going to listen to an evangelist talk about the rapture this week on television, he talks about the second coming of Christ when it's the rapture that we are interested in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But all he talked about was the second coming. And that's to the nation of Israel. And he's got those things confused. I was wondering if he has thrown out of his teaching the rapture. The truth of the rapture. I never hear him talk about it. When he talks about the second coming. uh, uh, The coming of Christ. It's always the second coming. Not the coming in secret. Not his coming for the church. But his coming To the people of Israel is what is commonly used these days. Now when we get into verse 20, it says uh, in verse 19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, or a word of prophecy made more sure. You see, the Apostle Peter could go back to hundreds of verses in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, by the time he writes this, it is A.D., Christ has already died. He's already been buried. He's already been raised. And there are hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that would validate the words of the Apostle Peter. And uh, he could get any number of scriptures to say, this is proof of what I am saying. This is a fact. Christ died. And that's according to Isaiah chapter 53. Christ is risen. Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand. And all according to Old Testament scripture. And we find here that uh, as As far as Peter's concerned, he says all of that prophecy now is prophecy that only proves what we are saying as being true. And that prophecy acts as a light in a dark place until that day dawns. What day is he talking about? Not the rapture, but the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world, to this earth, to Palestine, to the throne of David, to the people of Israel. That's the day that's going to dawn for the nation of Israel. And it has not as yet dawned. And so he says here in verse 19, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. You and I don't take heed to prophecy unless we find it in Paul's writings. Paul and the other apostles are prophets as well. And therefore, if we want to see what God says about the last days of the church, we don't go to Peter because he talks about the last days of the people of Israel. It takes the apostle Paul to give us the last days of the church. And therefore, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus, you have the last days of the church. And you will find uh, pictures of, or word pictures we might see of what's going on in the world today because I believe that we are living in the last days of the church. All right, but to the people of Israel he says that prophecy should act in your heart and life as the light that shines in a dark place until that day dawns. And I'm afraid that the people of Israel which has become a nation not divinely recognized necessarily, but has become a nation recognized by other nations in the world today, I don't believe that they're going to the Old Testament prophets very much and properly, rightly discerning and dividing the word of truth in order to see what their lot is in this world. They are blind. I could see that with Abba Ivan. On television when he gave some historical facts concerning the people of Israel and the times of Christ and who Christ was, what he was, what he did, and what we as Christians are today and where we get the name from. You can see he's blind. The man has no spiritual vision. And that's exactly the way the nation is today, without spiritual vision. And then we go on, and it says, "Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures is of any private interpretation." And we find that this uh, would mean that no particular individual is the is the author of holy scripture, because it came, according to verse twenty one, the prophecy came not in old time, by the will of man. Some person did not sit down and. Uh, make up his mind that he was going to write down some scripture. He had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And according to this, it says, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were moved, they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference between scripture and the writings of men. This is the only book in all the world that represents the Word of God. That is the Word of God. And we find it is not in the original manuscripts, of course, which we don't have. But we have translations. And I might say, and I would suggest once again, that the King James Version is the best and most uh, dependable version that you can stay with. And I would suggest staying with it. Unless you are teaching and you want to get the opinions and the writings of others and the plainer language uh, that we use today. But don't fall... To just using that exclusively, I know there is a temptation to stay with the King James Version. Forget the other versions as far as the book that you really want to study is concerned because I think the King James is far more reliable uh, according to the manuscripts than any other uh, book. All right, so the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is rightly dividing the word of truth. This belongs to the people of Israel. It is true that there are some qualities, there are some things that can be said uh, uh, for the members of the Hebrew church that can equally be said of members of the body church, but that doesn't give us any right to think or to suppose that there is no difference between the two, that the two are absolutely one, and that the two started together in Acts chapter 1. That's a fallacy that's been put on Christendom, and it's been to the confusion of hundreds of thousands, millions of believers and of professing Christians in the world today. May the Lord bless his, these thoughts uh, that we've given on Second Peter. We'll start with chapter 2 and verse 1 this evening. Read it in that. Now we can make a change in that, not for the sake of the bride and the groom, but for us who like to study the word, and that is, that whatever God has sundered, let not man put together all right, right, Second Peter chapter 2 in the first three verses. But there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, that's not Christendom, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil-spoken. And through covetousness shall they with fainted words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. We know that the Old Testament scriptures give us an awful lot of prophetic sayings. The prophets really uh, take part in a good deal of the Old Testament writings. There are major prophets, four major prophets, and several minor prophets, and they all have to do with the people of Israel. The true prophets spoke of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They spoke of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his glory, the glory that should follow his uh, humiliating death on the cross. And those prophets also spoke of an everlasting kingdom, and we have the uh, Davidic uh, uh, covenant that was made and given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 7, is it? 1 Samuel chapter 7. And uh, we find there that God promised the people of Israel that there would be a kingdom on this earth and the throne sitter would be a son of David and that kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. So there are two main features and that is the king and the kingdom. And we find that this is the very two subjects that's pursued by our Lord Jesus Christ. He pursued the subject of the kingdom, of course, because when he came into the world to the Hebrew people, he did not come to Gentiles, he only came to Hebrews, he told them that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And since the king has to be one who has passed through death and is raised by the power of God, the king himself could not be uh, uh, offered to the people until he had been raised from the dead. And in Peter's uh, wonderful message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, we find an offer of the risen Christ who is verily the Messiah, the seed of the woman, and has already come and has been taken by wicked hands and been crucified and slain. So we find that the book of Acts pursues the same thought, the same uh, subjects as we have prophesied in Old Testaments by the prophets that God had raised up and also spoken of by John the Baptist and by the Lord Jesus and his twelve apostles. Uh, Then, as soon as Christ was raised from the dead and Pentecost comes along, we find that uh, he takes a seat at the Father's right hand, and just shortly before doing that, he commissions the eleven remaining apostles. He commissions them with what we commonly call the Great uh, Commission, However, it happens to be a kingdom commission. It is not a commission that we are laboring under today. We often hear preachers talk about the Great Commission, and they will tell you how that they believe that they are preaching according to that. But no preacher today preaches according to the Great Commission. All you have to do is read it in Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24 And you will see in those chapters three beautiful pictures of what the the one kingdom uh, uh, proclamation uh, was to be. And they would show us very clearly that the signs and the wonders and everything else that would follow in the wake of the preaching of that kind of message is not what's following in the wake of our message today. That belongs to Israel because Israel is the only people on the face of the earth with an earthly heritage, with an earthly Uh, outlook and hope, and because of that, we find that God brought miracles among them, and uh, God had a special people in those uh, people of Israel. The true prophets were given evidences of the divine source of their prophecy, such as miracles and signs, and any prophet that came along and and professed to represent uh, God, that his voice represented the voice of God, was able to show... Uh, immediately, by some sign or some wonder, that the source was divine, and that would be true of all of the prophets. Uh, the true prophets did not speak out of themselves; they never did, and that's what we have in the the last verses that we looked at just uh, this morning, in verses 20 and 21 of chapter one of Second Peter. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in all time by the will of man, but holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And that was true of all of the true prophets. Now God has raised up many true prophets in the Old Testament. He has raised up true prophets in the New Testament because with each one of these callings, the earthly calling for the nation of Israel or the Hebrew church, And the heavenly calling for the church which is his body, the Gentile church as we might say, we find that they both uh, have uh, their own callings and they both have their own line of prophecy, therefore there must be prophets associated with the church, the body of Christ as well as with the earthly calling, the people of Israel. Now our prophets, we depend on the word of the Apostle Paul in his letters and uh, he faithfully prophesies concerning the future of the church, the body of Christ, how we are going to be caught up, what our future is going to be like, and that when we see him, we're going to be like him. And uh, that's not exactly the words, those are John's words, but he tells us in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 that uh, we are going to have our bodies changed and fashioned like unto the body of his glory, and that's how we will be throughout all eternity. Now that's prophecy. And prophecy belongs with any calling, but we have to depend upon Paul to give us the prophecy of the uh, church, which is his body, and we depend upon Peter to give the prophecy for the Hebrew church. And uh, men like Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the Persian king, and the only reason why a Jew would be a cupbearer to the Persian king, was because of the apostasy of the people of Israel, and God allowed the Persians to come in and take over And we find that Nehemiah was among those who were taken away and enslaved, we might say, to the Persians. But he was a cupbearer to the Persian king. And the time came when he had the privilege of gathering the people of Israel together, when God was going to release them from their bondage to the Persians. And he was going to preach to them. And the only thing that he had to go by, of course, were the prophets. And if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, Nehemiah just before Esther, if you know where Esther is, before Job and so on. Nehemiah chapter 8 and 8, uh, we have uh, a, a beautiful little sentence or uh, verse of scripture that would show us uh, how they preached the word. Now Nehemiah was not a prophet, as I said, he was a cupbearer, he was a servant to the Persian king, but prior to that he was a good believing Jew, there's no doubt about it. The believing Jews had to go into captivity, into exile, along with the unbelieving uh, Jews who had given way to apostasy. And so we find that Nehemiah was one of those believing Jews. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 it says, So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Now I think that's a wonderful thing. uh, I was just having a little talk with uh, Jennifer this afternoon in the house, and uh, uh, I, I just forget the background of, of the discussion that we had. She, oh, she says, why can't you just go to church and read the Bible and not have to explain anything and take me out to the park for <laughs> a walk? And, well, that would have been very easy. All I have to do is go and find a portion of Scripture, you know, and do that. And I said, well, I said, it just happens to be that that I'm going to be on a verse of Scripture to show how that that is not quite enough. The word will be read, but it will also be, uh, be made plain for the people who listen to it. So I read her, Nehemiah 8 and 8, and she thought it was rather strange that on that day when she would raise that question that I had the answer for it, but it was simply because I had meditated upon it and gathered it together along with the rest of the uh, scriptures yesterday when I was thinking about these things. Now, all the prophets, however, were not divinely sent prophets. We know that. We know that the devil would just not allow the people of Israel to be exposed to the pure word of God and to such men as Nehemiah who would read the word of God distinctly and make it very clear and make it understandable to the people. That wouldn't be like the enemy to allow that sort of thing. Now, there is an avowed enemy of God, and we know who he is. It is Satan. And we have his record given to us in Isaiah chapter 14, as well as Ezekiel chapter 28. But there is one statement that he made in his heart in the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And that is this, I will be like the Most High. Now, that was the objective that he had before him ever since he fell. And when God saw this particular objective before him, that he was going to dethrone God, as it were, and sit upon the throne of God himself, and God was the creator of Satan, mind you, and Satan had no creative powers. And we find that when God saw this uh, particular evil thought in his heart, he was deposed from his throne, and he became what he is today. We know he has access into heaven and he roams about the uh, the air because he is uh, head over the principalities and the powers and the uh, spiritual wickednesses that uh, are free to roam through the air above us and they use all the influence they possibly can given to them by the power of satan to uh, act as false prophets even in the day that we are living but paul uh, peter is not talking about the day that we are living he's talking about the day that's going to approach for the nation of Israel, and it's not the same day as ours, and I think we can make that understandable soon. When Satan fell from his lofty, and we might say his prestigious throne, in the universe, he corrupted his wisdom and beauty in order that he might not not, uh, use it, not for the good of man, but for the evil of man, to trip him up, and to get him thoroughly confused as to what the Bible really says And therefore, he is bending all of his efforts and all of his powers to distort the Word of God, and he's a taskmaster at that particular purpose. His first false prophet, we might say, was not a man. It happened to be a beautiful creature that God had made, and that creature was there in the Garden of Eden in the form of a beautiful serpent. Now, the serpent wasn't a scary thing. Adam and Eve had no reason to be afraid of it, because there was no sin as far as the Garden of Eden was concerned. Nor in the hearts of Adam and Eve, sin had not entered into that fair creation. And so we find this beautiful serpent uh, appealed undoubtedly to uh, uh, Eve, and we find that he sought to prophesy, because he said, Hath God said of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou mayest not eat thereof, for thou shalt surely die, and she says, yes, that's what God said. And he says, well, he says, God knows that the day that you eat thereof you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, he didn't tell the whole thing because he didn't say how that you won't have any control over the good and you won't have any control over the evil. You wouldn't know it all right, but it would be a tantalizing knowledge. It would be a knowledge you would be sorry for later on as you go through life. Well, all of the truth is not revealed by a false prophet, of course. So I might say that Satan used as his first false prophet to tell what the future was going to be in the event a certain uh, step was taken by Adam and Eve, and he was the serpent there in the garden. Well, we know what took place. We know that she uh, listened to that false prophet, and she took of the fruit and gave to Adam, and he took of the fruit. Then, of course, because he was a responsible person between the two, he was head over Eve, we find that uh, God would say in the book of Romans chapter 5 that by one man sin entered into the world, a death by sin, and so death passed upon all men and that all have sinned. He didn't say by one woman. Uh, Adam could have refused the woman, and I believe that there would not have been the sin in the world if Adam had not taken a bite of that fruit, whatever the fruit was at the hand of Eve, because she was not the responsible uh, person, he was a responsible person. He represented, we might say, all of the human race that was in his loins. And we never speak of the loins of the woman as possessing any particular family, but it's always the loins of the man, as you get it just a little later on in chapter 4, I think it is of the book of Genesis, where you find Run down on some of the uh, people of the human race in that early stage now in our day, Satan employs much of the clergy we know that there are lots of people that are being used today, and uh, we don 't hardly detect them because they make sure that they speak very well they're very good speakers and uh, we find that they're well trained they've gone some of them have gone to Bible school. some of them have gone to uh, Uh, colleges and others have gone to uh, schools of great reputation, religiously speaking, and a lot of them tainted by modernism and and so on. And he knows exactly which are those that he has raised up to become the false prophets of today. But we're not talking about false prophets of today. We're talking about false prophets that's coming in the future. However, I'm bringing this in to let you know that while Peter's not talking about our false prophets, there are false prophets in the world today, and you and I have to be very careful of them. Now, in our day, Satan employs much of the clergy, as I said a while ago, and these that are employable by him and empowered by him are called false prophets. I want you to see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is uh, is written by the Apostle Paul. So here we find truth for the church, the body of Christ. And now what he says about false prophets here is for our enjoyment or for our consumption or for our study and meditation. But what Peter says is for the study and meditation and for the uh, warning of his particular people. In 2 Corinthians chapter uh, Uh, I want you to look first of all at verses 3 and 4. He says in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 11, But I fear lest by any any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now he's directing his his speech, his uh, message to these Corinthians. These Corinthians were saved people, but saved people have to be on the alert and we find there are a lot of people who don't want to be on the alert. And after they have been alerted, they don't care anyway. They'll choose their own path. And in verse 4, I want you to notice, it says, For he that cometh, pre- cometh preaching, uh, preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if we receive another spirit, which we have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not received, uh, uh, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Uh, Here we have the fact that there are some other things that the false prophet brings in. He brings in another Jesus. Well, that's easily done. All you have to do is get back into the four Gospels, forget all about the mystery that God has revealed through the Apostle Paul, and get all entangled with the four Gospels and what Jesus did, what he said, what he preached, and the miracles that he wrought when he was here on this earth. Most of Christendom is taken up today with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And yet we have it very plainly stated in Second Corinthians chapter 5 that we don't know Christ as the Jesus of the four Gospels. We go on to the Christ of resurrection, the Christ of glory, and the Christ of glory has revealed marvelous teachings, including uh, prophecy to the Apostle Paul, and we have it in his letters. But a lot of people have no time for his letters, just as the Asians Uh, Back there in Paul's day, didn't have any time for, for the Apostle Paul. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he says that there are those there in Asia who have forsaken him. A lot of people don't like Paul because they've got this foolish notion in their head that if they go for Paul, they can't go for Jesus. And Jesus is greater than Paul, so we have to listen to Jesus and make Paul to be the second voice, not the first voice. But when we accept the voice of the Apostle Paul, we are accepting the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ who spoke to Paul from the glory after he ascended and that is accepting the word of Christ. We don't accept the word of the Lord Jesus because Jesus speaks it From his mouth, all he had to say, and when he was here on this earth, was all for the people of Israel. Now, don't get sidetracked. Don't try to squeeze in a Gentile here and a Gentile there. As Gentiles, they were not to be subject to the ministry that was for the purpose of the people of Israel. Therefore, the Lord Jesus, when he directed twelve apostles, told them plainly not to go into the way of the Gentiles, nor into the cities or streets of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that was true right up into, through Pentecost. And at Pentecost, the Lord Jesus Christ is not preached to the Gentiles as such. And we find a Gentile ultimately listens to the word in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. And after that, we find Peter loses his power, we might say, and, and the message Uh, falls far short of uh, being attractive to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel ultimately reject Christ as the risen uh, king, the king of the people of Israel, and he is uh, flatly rejected. But uh, here we find it says that there is another Jesus preached, there is another uh, spirit that is preached, Why? We have all kinds of spirits around about us. You ever hear people claim to, to get this healing and to that healing? They claim to hear a voice and they heard God speak to them. Those are all spirits that are contrary to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit never operates contrary to His Word. And this is not the day of miraculous healings. This is not the day of signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. That is a fourfold explanation of God's dealings with Israel and not with the church, which is his body. Now, this is the reason why only during the Acts period, when God is still busy with the, Jew, with the Jewish nation, trying to get them to see Christ as risen, this is the reason why we find that the Apostle Peter is... Uh, Uh, is preaching simply the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and they have to begin in their belief, the Jews do have to begin in their belief with the fact that the one that they had taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain, he is the one that's raised from the dead and therefore he qualifies to sit on the throne of David. And so we find that the, the Holy Spirit always operates within Uh, his God-given and divinely appointed sphere. And the Holy Spirit does not step out of his sphere and say, well, I'm going to help this family out. That's not the way it goes. We have a lot of things that are miraculous. We have a lot of things that appear to be miraculous. Medicines have been blessed and so on. But there's a lot of fakery among those people who will not resort to medicines and to hospitalization and to doctors and so on. And yet they will swear up and down that through the laying on of some preacher's hands they have been healed. And yet they complain of their aches and their pains right after that. There has been no healing because God is not in the business of it unless it is through the power of Satan, the enemy of souls, who will also lend his power to effect what appears to be a cure for these people who want it that way and will not be satisfied to have it in any other way not only is there another spirit but it says there is another gospel now there are two gospels in the New Testament and, and one is the gospel of the kingdom the other is the gospel of the grace of God these two are not to be mixed but if you mix the two you've got three haven't you <laughs> you see you either got the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of God's grace and if you mix the two you've got a third gospel which is not a gospel And that's exactly what Satan is doing today, trying to confuse the minds of people. Look at all of the hundreds of thousands of people who say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in eternal security. Now eternal security is in Paul's gospel, very clearly taught in Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 4, and Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 3. It's clearly taught there. So where did they get the idea that there's no eternal security? Because their gospel has been mixed with the kingdom which is more or less conditioned upon continuance. And those people don't have the same gospel that we had. And that's why you have a lot of ifs associated with the gospel of the kingdom, but you don't have that associated with the gospel of the grace of God. So when you find anybody that doesn't believe in eternal security, or doesn't believe in the millennial reign, or doesn't believe in the time of tribulation, they're looking for the world to come to an end, and that has been part of the gospel that's been taught to them, You know that it's not the gospel that the Apostle Paul calls my gospel in the ministry of Jesus Christ according to the mystery. But not only that do we find a false gospel, but we find everything here that he mentions. What is it? We find another Jesus whom we have not preached and whom you have received and another spirit and uh, another gospel. Three things that Satan has the audacity to change and because it changes, because it's only a change, and because there are reflections of the truth of one gospel as opposed to another gospel, or there is a connection between the false spirit and divine healing, which the true spirit did uh, uh, work uh, in relation to the nation of Israel, it just seems to be something that's so overpowering that the people accept it lock, stock, and barrel, and we find more people deluded. Among so-called believers today, some of them are going to be in heaven in spite of it. We thank God for it. That in spite of the fact that they have not been exposed to a real gospel, the gospel of the grace of God, Paul's my gospel, we find that in spite of it, there's been just enough there left behind for someone to put their faith and confidence in Christ, and they have been saved regardless. But most of them, a lot of them, are not saved. Now you might ask yourself the question, were there many takers as far as this is concerned? And I would have to say, yes, there are. What is their message? First of all, another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And we might ask the question, did they get an audience? When you read verse 4 in the Phillips translation, this is how verse 4 sounds. It says, uh, for apparently you cheerfully accept a man who comes to you preaching a different Jesus from the one we told you about. And then the rest of that verse. You see, there is this in the Greek that there is a positive recognition on the part of the Apostle Paul that some people have accepted this false teacher or these false teachers that have come along. Now, all throughout Israel's Old Testament experience, Satan sought to confuse the people by false prophets. And in so doing, he has spoiled the whole outlook of the people of Israel. Now, when you get down into Peter's day, what is the outlook for the people of Israel? The outlook is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, will come back to the nation of Israel if all of the people of Israel repent and are baptized and show their proper grief over having taken the Lord Jesus Christ by wicked hands and have crucified him. Now if they all do that, and the word all is in the last verse, I think it is, of the third chapter of the book of Acts. And all are involved. This is not to be a, a sort of a, a token number of believers. This has got to be all of them. And if all of them do this, then God has promised in the third chapter of the book of Acts that he will send the Lord Jesus Christ back and the kingdom will be set up eventually. And we thank God for that promise, but of course the people never gave uh, God the opportunity of setting up the kingdom. So he spoiled the whole outlook of the people of Israel. Now we find that the apostle Peter is talking just about 10 years, maybe 15 at the most, before uh, the uh, nation of Israel come to a close as far as God is concerned. Of course, that's only temporary, but it's lasting now for these 2,000 years. And therefore, he says in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Peter, second Peter, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers. Now, he's talking about the future. He's not talking about right then and there, although I believe that right then and there there were false prophets among the people of Israel, telling them that this was a lot of hogwash, that they were not to put their confidence in what is being said by Peter. Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. And that there will be a kingdom, but it's not along Peter's terms or the terms that the Apostle Peter has mentioned. And this is not true at all. And we find that for some reason, the most part of the people of Israel refused to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, which was step number one on their part, towards seeing the kingdom established on the earth in their day. And so the apostle Peter says there shall be false prophets, and that is the future. Now, if only within 10 or 15 years, the nation is going to come to an end as far as God is concerned, because in 70 AD, Titus is going to tear things apart, and there won't be a religion, and there won't be a nation for them anymore. What is he talking about? What is Peter talking about the future? He's talking about, well, you remember that uh, uh, diagram I had. If you folded the piece of paper, you would see on the blue line the whole purpose of God from the calling of Abraham was the nation of Israel, that they would have a kingdom and they would have a king. And God will pursue that. And when the church is left taken out of this scene, Immediately, by closing that piece of paper, you will see that God will start where he left off at Acts chapter 28. Or perhaps at 70 AD, as far as that's concerned, because there will be a new temple, a millennial millennial temple built. And God is going to begin again, as though there has been no interruption at all. An interruption we call the dispensation of grace. As though there has been no interruption and as soon as the church is released from this earthly bondage that she is passing through today, we find right then and there God is going to put Israel back on the main line. We are on the main line today. The Hebrew nation as a nation is sidetracked. And she's just standing there waiting for the main line to go through. And when that main line goes through or when the train on the main line is finished and passed, then the switch will be open, and Israel will resume her program again. I hope you get it in that particular illustration. Now we find that God warned the people of Israel in two ways back in the Old Testament times about false prophets and uh, that's part of this uh, what we have tonight. When you go back to Deuteronomy I want you to look at a couple of scriptures there in chapter 18 at verse 20. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. We want you to know that God was fair with the people of Israel. He gave lots of warnings concerning the fact that they would be assaulted uh, by false prophets because the enemy would not be happy with seeing the kingdom of heaven set up on earth with the uh, throne occupied by the uh, Son of God, Emmanuel, God come in the flesh. He would not like that because he represents the kingdom. And he wanted to be like the Most High. You remember that in the 14th verse, I think it is, of the 14th chapter of Isaiah. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be king. And we know in the book of Revelation, he is seen to be a king. But he is there, Apollyon. And we find that he is the king of the uh, kingdom of darkness. And that's not anything to brag about, is it? All right, chapter 18. And we have in verse 20... Uh, these words. Let me see, I'm one page off. Chapter 20, it says, But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, a man comes in the camp of Israel and says, I've got a word from God. Well, we want to listen to that word from God. And he gives that word. Well, there's something shady about it. It's not as, as good as what they have received from Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel or, or Hosea and so on. And we find that um, they say, well, how do we know you're speaking from God? Well, he says, I'm going to work a sign. And he works the sign. And we find that nothing happens. He calls for that sign to be wrought, but nothing happens. God says, that's your sign. He says, when they presume to speak of my name and they are not able to support it or to substantiate it by a sign or a wonder or a miracle, then you know it's all wrong. And don't listen to him, you have to put that man to death. Now when we go back to chapter 13, we find a little test that God gives to his people. And this is very important too. Chapter 13 of the book of Deuteronomy and in the first three verses. And here we find a little different situation. Here comes a person who comes along and really says something fantastically wrong. It's really contrary to what The tone of the other uh, prophets have been in the past. And they know by the very sound of what they are listening to that it's no good. All right, then what happens? This says, if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and believe it or not, we have dreamer of dreams in Christendom today. Beware of them. They use the name of Jesus and the Lord Jesus Christ. They talk about the church. They talk about dispensations. But beware of some of them. And the sign or the wonder, uh, and, and giveth thee a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Now what is his message? Let us go after other gods. That's so contrary to what any other prophet would say, that they don't need a miracle or a sign to know that that man is a liar. You see? They don't need that extra sign. But he gives a sign anyway, and a sign comes to pass. God allows that sign to come to pass. In verse 3 it says, Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and so on. So there is a case of where a man comes along and says so something so fantastically contrary to the mind of God that he has a miracle to follow it up and the people might say, well, why did you allow that miracle to take place? Well, only to test you. So there are testings. And we find something comparable to that in your life and my life today. You and I are brought to testings. Young people, old people, they are tested. And a lot of them fail the test. Isn't that too bad? After they've come to know the truth and to fail the test, and uh, they reverse their steps. All right, now we can imagine how busy Satan would be in Peter's day, can't we? when the matter of the kingdom and the king is the subject of the apostle Peter. Satan doesn't want to give way to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his kingdom of darkness to prevail, you see. Now Satan sought to attack both programs, the heavenly and the earthly. We find the heavenly program was attacked in Second Corinthians chapter 11. Now Peter is talking about the attack against the earthly program, and that is the program concerning the earth and the kingdom which is to come. Now, the gist of Peter's prophecy was that in Israel's last days, the tribulation period, Satan would raise up satanically inspired men, beastly in character. And we know that there are two beasts in the Revelation, in the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation, who would make a last-ditch stand to hinder the reign of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom that's represented by him to be over Uh, the people of Israel. So Satan is going to make a last-ditch attempt. He's going to make a stand that will be greater than anything he's ever done in the past. Now, just a few years after the Apostle Peter writes, we know the destruction of Jerusalem took, took place. God is not now dealing with the people of Israel. So let's turn over into that book that belongs to Israel. Now, it doesn't belong to the church. Don't look at Revelation and try to find a church there. That's a mistake. The seven assemblies or ecclesias or gatherings of people in the Revelation 2 and 3 are seven Hebrew assemblies. They are people who are saved during that awful time of tribulation who find an opportunity to meet in the districts where they are And they meet for uh, comfort, mutual comfort, and for God's revelation to them. I think that's when they are going to enjoy what uh, James has written, what Peter has written, what John has written, and what Jude has written in the book of Revelation. Now when you go into Revelation chapter 13, we have here a wonderful chapter. I've got time, I suppose, to read the whole chapter. And I hope this doesn't burden you too much, but I'm going to do what Jenny suggested Read the Bible. All right, the 13th chapter, we've got two beasts. Why are they called beasts? Because they are living creatures. They are men. And we find that these men are demon-inspired men, satanically inspired men, but they are beastly in character and in nature. They are presuming to be what they are not. And we find that the one is going to make a covenant with the people of Israel for three and a half years and then at the, he's going to make it for seven but he's going to break it off at three and a half and then he's going to show his satanic character in the last three and a half. It says in verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now the sea generally represents the nations in prophecy. So this might be a Gentile having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. These particular animals show that he's going to be a sort of a combination of some of the previous world powers that had been in existence and had held sway over the people of Israel. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now I think this is the reason why in the ecumenical world you have so much healing and tongues. But healing especially, that is one of the big things, big factors in the ecumenical world. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now forty and two months are three and a half years. These are not the first three and a half of the seven years, but the last three and a half years. By the time this starts, he has broken his covenant with the nation of Israel. He is going to behave like a gentleman until he's got Israel where he wants Israel, and that will take three and a half years. Then he's going to show how satanically inspired he is. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. This is what I said before, a last-ditch attempt on the part of Satan. If he doesn't uh, gain his objective now, he never will. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him, uh, given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. it's the universal thing, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man hath an ear hath an ear, let him hear He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the, faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast or living creature coming up out of the earth. And this represents the nation of Israel. The earth in prophecy represents Israel and her earthbound hopes. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spake like a dragon. Now like a lamb, that's like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the lamb that is acquainted with by the people of Israel. But he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power, the first beast, before him, and causeth the earth, and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, I want you to bring out that and that word again, healed, we had that with the first beast, now we got healing with this one. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now wouldn't you fall for a guy like that if he appeared in Forsyth? Why this Forsyth would contain the millions of people that would gather to this place if it was noised abroad that there was a man here who could call fire down, to come down from heaven. What a wonderful thing that would be. But it's the enemy. It's not God at work. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles. He's a miracle worker. Well, there are lots of those around us today. Don't fall for it. Those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which hath a wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Now that's going far, isn't it? Giving breath, as it were, to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. This world has never seen anything like it. Now, charismatically, Christendom is moving in that direction. You can take my word for it. We have lots of Christian organizations today which call themselves churches and so on, and we find that there is another spirit behind the whole thing claiming experiences and voices and sounds and things like that, which is not authored by the Holy Spirit of God, and this is what happens when we divert from rightly dividing the word of truth. We get into bypass meadow, and we get into a lot of difficulty. And it says, And caused that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused it all, both small and great, rich and poor, great, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name." Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the no- number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred score and six. I think the other day we mentioned that Rome was in power for six hundred and sixty-six years. That doesn't mean there's any connection at all, and I wouldn't even suggest there would be. But that is a popular number today. Some people will not have it on the number of their houses or on the license plates of the car, and that's going too far because these days will not take place until after the church is removed. And then God puts the people of Israel and God's earthly purposes with them on the main track, and they will have to go through the time of tribulation. They will have to go through terrible testings, and especially when these living creatures, these satanically inspired men, will get up as false prophets and do these miracles and signs and healings and wonders that this world has never seen the like of and will never again see the like of after it's over. May the Lord bless these words to our hearts this evening.